ministry of Community Bible Church on the web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved to God, a workman not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. As always, we are glad to be here to answer questions you may have as you've been studying God's word or a particular issue that you're facing in your personal life that you'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help by the grace of God, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone directly at 525-1859 or toll free at 877. The call letters of the station, WAGP 980. WAGP 980 is the 877 number, or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. So we're happy to take it however you can give it to us. When you come on the air, you can uh, remain anonymous. You can give your name. You can dictate your question to the person taking the phone calls, however you'd like to give it. As always, Rick, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've got a number of emails that have come in. So let's get to the first one. This is from Lee in Connecticut. He writes, I have been attending a church that has women deacons based upon 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 8 through 13. It's been my understanding that men are called to be deacons. When I asked the question of one of the pastors, this is his response. Uh, Board of Deacons has the responsibility, uh, but we've got a live caller first, and we always give priority to live callers. So uh, let's take that live caller now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. This is David. Hey, David. Uh, Good morning. Question for you. In, in our ABF, Rick has got us deep into the study of Daniel, and we had a, a discussion about this you know, with all of the dreams that, that Daniel was having. and. I guess the, the question came up, I guess all dreams happen when you're asleep and visions when you're awake. And I was curious, because during the Transfiguration, um, weren't, weren't the disciples asleep at, at that time when they, when they, they, they actually, but they did see uh, Moses and Elijah, and, but coming down the mount, Jesus says, tell them the one of this vision, and I'm just curious, were they asleep, were they awake? How, how did yeah. this all work out? Okay, well, it's great. It's a great question. Uh, interestingly, in Matthew uh, sixteen twenty-eight, right at the end, the last verse, he said, "Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see, literally, uh, the word that's used there, literally see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom." 
So Jesus said, there's some here with me who are not going to die until they literally physically see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that was indeed fulfilled six days later. And six days later, 17.1 opens of Matthew's account. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So no, they're awake during the whole thing. This is a real life experience. Uh, The word for see in 1628 is a word not to see like in a vision experience, but to see literally with your physical eyes, not just see with understanding, but literally to see. And that prophecy that Jesus made was fulfilled in chapter 17 when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it. He meets with Moses and Elijah, and Peter's response is actually uh, telling because the Old Testament really speaks of a coming kingdom of Messiah. And each of the Old Testament uh, feasts in some way foreshadowed Uh, the work of Jesus Christ. And one of the feasts that foreshadowed the coming work in the kingdom was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Peter actually is uh, showing that he knows his Bible, uh, but he's speaking when he shouldn't. And he literally hears a voice from heaven and uh, where God says, you know, this is my son. Uh, Be quiet. Just listen. And they fall on their faces. Again, they're very much alive. They're physically on their faces and they're much afraid. And then Jesus comes and touches them. I mean, they're in the, you know, just the voice of God caused them to tremble. Tremendous fear and awe and revere. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. And just uh, uh, get up and lifting them up. Um, they, and then they saw no one. So, no, they're not asleep. They're very much awake. Things are happening. And so the, it is true. Um, there are dreams that are given. There are visions that are given. Um, how some of those unfold aren't always explained. Some happen in a person's sleep. Some, like Peter in X10, he's in a trance. So some kind of altered state of consciousness, but nonetheless, um, the visions are real. This is not a vision uh, in terms of their experience where they're asleep. They're very much awake. And literally, actually, Moses and Elijah appear, appear on the Mount of Transfiguration and what Jesus had predicted came true. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. There, uh, We gave kind of a teaser here a moment ago. And if you want to call, the number is 525-1859 or toll-free 877-WAGP980. Or you can email us directly, as Lee from Connecticut did, at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. So anyway, Lee was reading in the Bible and saw that uh, it says that uh, deacons should be men. And he uh, went to his pastor and um, his pastor said the board of deacons has the responsibility to care for the needs and serving. And he found this in Acts 6, verses 1 through 6. 
And at our church, the pastor goes on to say, uh, we operate under the authority of the Board of Elders. Um, and then uh, uh, in Romans 16.1, We'll come back to that <laughs> teaser. We always give preference to lies. Call. We, and we will, by the way, answer Lee's question from Connecticut about whether women can be deacons and the passages that his pastor is using to defend women deacons. Let's go to it. All right. Uh, let's go to our live caller. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Hello, this is Mabel. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Mabel. How can we help you this morning? Yeah, my question is, when Adam and Eve died, did they go to heaven? Good question. I do believe they do. I think we'll meet Adam and Eve both in heaven. Um, You know, they obviously, uh, as the founders of the human race, so to speak, Adam being the head, sinned and rebelled against God, and, and God made him a promise Uh, In Genesis 3 and verse 15, uh, he speaks to the serpent, and he speaks to the woman, and he speaks to the man. And in the whole process there of Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise of a Savior who will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And of course, he also, beyond that, illustrates the need for a blood atonement, because if you remember, Adam and Eve had made coats of skin and, excuse me, had made fig leaves to cover their sin, and God came, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So God was not only giving a word of prophecy concerning a Savior, but then when they, through their own what we call today often fig leaf religion, man-made religion, man trying to appease God and deal with his sin through his own effort and work as they did with their fig leaves, God steps in and the first death in all the universe takes place. Now, there's not a verse in scripture that says Adam is in heaven or Eve is in heaven, which is obviously the source of your question. But what I find so interesting is when you come into uh, Genesis chapter 4, it says, now the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and She said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of Yahweh. Uh, If you look in, at least in the New American Standard, they spell the word Lord in different ways. Sometimes it's capital L, small letter O-R-D, or capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is it here. And that's just to distinguish which name for God is being used. And so she uses the covenant name of God. I've gotten a man-child with the help of Yahweh because she was in covenant with the Lord, which is fantastic. Um, And then what is so interesting is what Cain and Abel do. And of course, uh, Abel, we're told, came and he offered a blood sacrifice and Cain brought the work of his hands. And God was pleased with one and rejected the other. Now, some people have tried to, I think, work around this passage by saying, well, the the difference in the two offerings was not that one was blood and the other was uh, simply, you know, fruit. Maybe they say the origin of one was different, was displeasing to the Lord. One came from the earth and the ground was cursed. Well, listen, all of creation was cursed, which would mean the animal that Abel's sacrifice was cursed. Or some would say, well, maybe, uh, you know, because it says um, Abel brought the firstlings of the flock that maybe Cain brought less than his best. Well, the text doesn't say that. That would be what we would call eisegesis reading into the text, something that's not explicitly said. 
he may have brought the finest of everything he had in terms of turnips and flowers and whatever it was that he brought that he was growing there in the earth. Um, So I don't think we can say that, but letting Scripture interpret Scripture, we do know that God had revealed the need for a blood offering. Not only had he made a promise of a Savior in Genesis 3.15, which I have an hour-long sermon if someone wants to hear it, you go online to searchthescriptures.org and listen to it. Uh, He also illustrated the need for a blood sacrifice. Well, how would Abel have known this? Well, obviously his parents taught him. And so Abel did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. He came on the basis of faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, Hebrews 11.4. Where does faith come from? Well, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so God had already spoken. God had already revealed the need for blood. Now, of course, the blood of animals could never take away sin, but these were symbolic. The blood sacrifices of the, of the Old Testament Uh, We're in that age what baptism is to us today. Our baptism looks back at the finished work of Christ. The blood sacrifices of the Old Testament look forward to what Messiah was going to do. We also learn in the New Testament that uh, of something about Abel that we don't know uh, from the Old Testament. We know from Luke 11 in um, um, Matthew 23 that Abel was a prophet of God. Uh, Jesus indicted the Pharisees, uh, held them responsible, he said, for the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, from the first prophet to the last prophet. So God held them accountable. So we know that he was a prophet. We also know in Acts chapter 10 that of him, Peter says, all the prophets spoke of Messiah. That would include Abel. So, you know, God had revealed it, had made it clear And uh, the fact that even Eve uses the covenant name of the Lord uh, and calls the Lord God Yahweh shows that they were in covenant relationship with him. So letting scripture interpret scripture, yes, I think we'll meet Adam and Eve in heaven. But that's a great question. All right, we've got a couple other callers stacking up. So let's go to our next live caller who's waiting. Indeed. Uh, Let me see what line that uh, caller is on there. I think we're actually calling him back. So uh, we'll uh, bear with us. There he is. Okay, Uh thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, a few weeks ago, you were given your uh, message on a Sunday morning uh, It was dealing with the economy. And in there, you referenced uh, Schofield. You said that he was a good man. He did a lot of great things. But unfortunately, he was not qualified to be a pastor because he was married twice. I was wondering if you could clarify that uh, and let us know if or let me know that was it because he was divorced and remarried? Or was he a widower and remarried? And if he was a widow, does that still disqualify him from being a pastor? It's a good question. First uh, Timothy 3, when it gives the qualifications for an elder, speaks of uh, the husband of one wife, or literally a, a, a one-woman man. Uh, some have taken that to say single people are excluded from being able to be a pastor. I don't see that because Paul was single his whole life. And he was a pastor. All apostles were elders or pastors, but not elder. All elders, of course, are apostles. Uh, to be an apostle, you had to have been hand selected by Christ, seen the risen Lord, and done the signs, wonders, and miracles that gave confirmation that both of those things were true. 
Um, so Peter calls himself a fellow elder. If he was the first pope, he didn't know anything about it. Uh, he understood himself not just to be an apostle, but an elder. And the word elder, pastor, bishop is used interchangeably in the New Testament of the same office. So I don't think it's an exclusion of single people, not to mention that the chief elder or pastor is the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Some have said it's a prohibition against remarried widowers. I don't think so for a couple of reasons. Number one, widows in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 5 are encouraged to uh, remarry, younger widows. And uh, Paul encourages that. And then when he gives the qualifications for widows that are to be honored in the church, he speaks not of, obviously, uh, uh, the husband of one wife, but uh, the woman of one husband. It's the opposite phrase in the Greek New Testament. It's not a uh, one-woman man, but a one-man woman. And so I don't think Paul would discourage someone from remarrying. Uh, especially if that would disqualify them later for having a position of honor in the church. So I don't think by any stretch that that is what's in view, though there have been some expositors who have taken it that way. Probably the most famous in the last century was S. Lewis Johnson. Um, No, I think what is in view is that it's an exclusion of someone who is on a second marriage as being a pastor. And someone might want to listen to my message on 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 8, where I address the subject in great detail. And with uh, C.I. Schofield, a good Bible teacher, and again, it's a reminder that while people may have been divorced, it doesn't mean that they're excluded from ministering the kingdom of God. They just can't serve in the office of elder or deacon. But sometimes we take that requirement and we say, well, let's, let me tell you what else they can't do. And we go way past what the bounds of Scripture give. And we need to be careful not to do that. So, yes, C.I. Schofield was divorced and then remarried. And um, he wrote an interesting study Bible, took some positions that were rather unique and were popularized because in many ways that was the very first study Bible that gained um, broad access in the evangelical church in America. So for years and years, even when I was a new Christian in the 70s, people were still carrying their Schofield study Bibles. Some thought the notes were virtually inspired, and there was a number of rhymes that would come up uh, making fun of that viewpoint. But still, uh, Schofield was a good man, but he should not have been a pastor of a church because he had been divorced and remarried. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, thank you. Good morning, Pastor, and good morning, Rick. Morning. Um, Thanks for calling. Pastor, if you would uh, discuss the... A biblical model for eldership, um, not just the requirements for for uh, eldership, but also um, specifically, is it biblical to vote uh, on elders uh, in any sort of regular basis, or should elders be appointed? And once they're appointed, assuming that they're called uh, called of God to be elders, that they'll be called for a lifetime. It's a great question, and. Um... There's a lot of silence in terms of how some of these details should unfold. It is true that Paul, um, when he writes to Titus in Titus chapter 1, uh, he, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, there in the Isle of Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. 
So here you have Titus, who's a pastor, and he's a member of the apostolic team of Paul's missionaries, one of Paul's missionary teams, and he's directly commanded by um, Paul himself to appoint elders. As I directed you, he gave him some specific details beginning with qualifications. But Titus was somewhat unique, and this is the start of the church, and there's no directives other than this particular one from an apostle as to the choosing of an elder. And again, I think that's somewhat unique, just like uh, when you had a few people uh, who did miracles who were not apostles, but they did them because they were apostolic delegates. And that's really where most people would see uh, this particular brother, Titus. But with that being said, God does give us the specific uh, qualifications, which are huge and separate a lot of people from the pack in terms of who might possibly be selected. In addition, he gives us some of the responsibilities of what an elder does in terms of protecting the flock, in terms of feeding the people with the word of God, leading in evangelism and prayer. Those are some non-negotiables. There's a lot of things today that uh, the modern church has invented into a pastor's job description that really aren't found in Scripture. It's not that he's above those things or couldn't do those things, but if he did those things all the time, he would not be a good pastor. He would be uh, less than efficient in what God has called him to do. One of the primary ways a pastor shows his love for Christ and in turn to his flock is to work hard at the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Uh, Jesus, three times over, uh, asked Peter if, if he really loved him. And Christ's response in each case was to take care of the sheep, feed them. And we feed the sheep with the Word of God because it's milk, it's meat, it's honey, it's bread. And it's what sustains us and grows us and converts us as God's people. Um, With that said, in terms of modern-day eldership, how many? God doesn't say. It's just a plurality. Should a church have two elders or 15 elders? It's a local church call. Uh, Our church, um, when I first came, we had five elders. Then we had six elders. Then we had seven elders. Then we had six elders. We're at five elders right now. It's it's a local church issue. Um, It's what the elders would, would dictate. Uh, Now, the way elders are elected, so to speak, at Community Bible Church is the elder board picks them. But in turn, they have to be confirmed by the congregation, by at least 75% of the people confirming them. Uh, There's a principle here in Scripture that works and runs really in both directions. For instance, if you were to read... uh, Hebrews chapter 13, he speaks about leaders in the church and gives some explicit instructions of how the congregation is to respond to leaders. And in uh, Hebrews 13 and verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So it doesn't sound very democratic. Uh, It's... uh, It's very clear that it's un-American, I suppose, but the people in the congregation are to obey their leaders and to submit to them. Uh, Yet on the other hand, and here's kind of a balancing principle 
in Ephesians chapter 5, as well as in the book of Colossians, the Bible says that we submit one to another in the fear of the Lord, Ephesians 5.21. So the way we bring those two principles together in Scripture at Community Bible Church is, one, the elders select potential new elders. Why do we do that? Well, number one, it's not a popularity contest. You know, I went to a church one time, and uh, they weren't selecting elders, but deacons. And in that particular church, the deacons tended to function like elders. And they passed out a list of every man in the church over the age of 18. And you put a check mark next to the names of the people that you thought should be deacons. And whoever got the most checks were then uh, elected as the deacons. Uh, real problems with that. Um, number one, many people on that list were not qualified. They didn't meet the qualifications for a deacon. Some might have been very charismatic, well-known, wealthy, rich, good business people, but not necessarily qualified to serve in the office of deacon. Not to mention very often as elders, because you're dealing with people on a regular basis and you do that in confidence, you are aware of issues that are unfolding in a person's life that people at large uh, don't know and don't need to know. And again, they would be unqualified in light of some of those issues that are going on. I have, if some man, say, committed adultery 16 months ago, would I want to consider him for an elder or a deacon? No, I, I'd, I'd want some real serious time and space between that act of immorality, maybe a decade, before I would want to consider him Uh, to be a a deacon or an elder in the church. And then only then, if he had his family on track and he was walking with the Lord and met the qualifications spelled out in 1 Timothy 3. So the Bible gives a lot of leeway. And so some of these things are local church issues and there's a lot of flexibility and there's no one right way of doing it. Should elders be appointed for life? The Bible doesn't say whether they would serve for life. Uh, in fact, some, some men who might be an elder would need to step down because they end up disqualifying themselves. So you certainly couldn't dogmatically say that all elders should serve for life. Uh, in fact, that's why once a year, uh, the people of Community Bible Church are given a ballot and they vote on each person individually. And I always say, if, if these are men of God, affirm them. If they're not, fire them. But neither would we put it back out to the congregation to say, well, you tell us who should be an elder. So, again, there's some biblical principles, but there's a lot of leeway and flexibility. Uh, So, for instance, uh, you might take the Lord's Supper. Should we have it once a week, uh, twice a month, once a month, uh, once a quarter? It's a local church issue. Um, God doesn't specify. He just says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so some will look at the biblical principles and the model of the New Testament church and try to come up with a decision as to how they are going to uh, unfold that. Deacons just means uh, servants. Uh, In what capacity should the deacons serve? What do they do? Um, Well, there's there's a lot of freedom, a lot of flexibility, a lot of leeway. And so in one church, the deacons might serve at the will of the elders and a given number of functions. In another church, they might do something else. Uh, so there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of, a lot of leeway. God is not rigid in some of these issues. Some people make dogmatic statements where the Scripture doesn't speak dogmatically. If it does, then I can speak dogmatically. If it doesn't, 
then I, I need to be somewhat flexible without compromising what we know clearly to be true in the Word of God. So that's a great question. Let's, uh, let's go on to the next one. All right. We're going to try Lee from Connecticut. We'll question. just read it, and even if someone calls, they'll have to wait. All, All right. right. Uh, we'll start from the beginning again. Uh, he writes, I've been attending a church that has women deacons. Uh, based upon 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, it's been my understanding men are called to be deacons. When I asked the question of one of the pastors, his response was, the board of deacons has the responsibility to care for needs and serving as in Acts 6, 1. And our church operates under the authority of the Board of Elders. Um, Secondly, in Romans 16, uh, verse 1, it says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Synchria. The Greek word translated as servant is diakonon. It's the same root word used for deacon. And thirdly, in 1 Timothy 3, in the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate. Um, That's the NIV. Wives here can also be translated as women, which in the NAS reads this way. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. It is commonly agreed that the NAS version is the most literal translation from the Greek. We interpret this to mean that Paul here is referring to deaconesses. Another argument that allows for deaconesses is that Paul does not mention anything about the wives of elders when speaking to the qualifications of elder. Um, If he were referring to the behavior and conduct of the wives of a deacon, it would follow that he'd do the same for the wives of elder, yet he does not. What's your understanding or view? Well, it's a good question. It's a fair question. Uh, There are some conservative churches that do have women deacons. Um, Those that do, though, um, would clearly, when I say conservative, I mean committed to the Word of God as their rule of life and rule of direction. But with that said, those churches that do have women deacons uh, very clearly uh, have some restrictions in terms of how that should take place and how that should unfold. And so this caller is asking some great questions. First of all, in Acts 6, when the apostles get together and they tell the, uh, the men uh, to choose six men, the congregation to choose six men among you who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word there that is used in Acts 6, if you remember, there was a, a problem that was going on in the early church in terms of how food was being distributed amongst the widows. And so in 6.3, the apostles say, select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And the word there for men is the uh, Greek word arnair. And it's not the word anthropos, like choose six people, but it's the word arnair that generically speaks literally of a man. And that's not by accident. Uh, So the fact that your pastor would even reference uh, Acts 6. Now, some don't see, some get around that because they don't see deacons here in Acts 6. But I do think that this is the genesis of deacons right here. Uh, the office of elder is an Old Testament office that carries over into the New Testament. The office of deacon was not found in the Old Testament, but it basically uh, begins right here in Acts chapter 6. And when he looks for the qualifications, he doesn't say six men or women. He uses a particular Greek word that can mean men only. Six literal men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with wisdom. So you have that issue. Um, the issue, and let me uh, re- 
the one that you raised from uh, Romans 16, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a servant. And if you have the uh, New American Standard, it will give you a little footnote. It will say a deaconess. You're right. It's the Greek word for deacon, but in feminine form. Who is a deaconess, you could say, of the church, which was at Sancria. So the question becomes, every time the word deacon is used in the Bible, is it used of the office of deacon, or can it be used in another way? Well, the word deacon just means a servant. So let me ask you, when Jesus said, he that would be great among you must be the servant of all, the word there is deacon. He that would be great among you must be the deacon of all. Is he talking about an office, or is he talking about an attitude of servanthood? The latter. He's not talking about the office. He's, he's talking about an attitude of servanthood. Greatness in the kingdom of God comes from serving others. That's antithetical to the way the world thinks of greatness, but that's what God's word says about greatness. So every time the word deacon appears, it's not always in reference to the literal office of deacon and to use uh, Romans 16 because Phoebe was a um, servant in the church is an extremely weak argument. That would be like making Epaphroditus an apostle. In Philippians, Epaphroditus is called the messenger, the uh, New American Standard says, to distinguish it. Um, And again, the translators of the New American Standard wanting to clearly distinguish it from the office of deacon instead of uh, translating it directly. deaconess, which you could put, I suppose, in the English text, they just write servant, which is what the word deacon means, because that group of translators clearly did not view this as an office. So um, this is a weak argument to use because the word deacon appears throughout the New Testament to describe people who serve in virtually any capacity and responsibilities that we all share as fellow Christians in the body of Christ. Uh, to go back to First Timothy three, um, he and by the way, again, there are some churches who who use this, and those that are trying to be faithful to the Word of God will then say, "Well, these women that serve as deacons can only serve over other women because they don't want them to violate First Timothy two twelve, where it says a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man." But in First uh, Timothy three. When he gives the qualifications for deacons, deacons likewise must be, and he gives this list. And right in the middle of the list, he kind of interrupts. And he says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And then he goes right back, let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers. So right in the middle of this list of qualifications, he uses this Greek word, gunakos, gunakos. Uh, the word gunikos is a word that can refer just to a woman or it can refer to a wife, a woman or a wife. Uh, so uh, husbands, love your uh, gunikai, plural there, as Christ loved the church. Wives, be submissive. Same word, gunikos. It's a word that means wives. And in a broader context, it can refer to women. Now, what the New American Standard tries to do faithfully is because they they are they have uh, two goals in translation. One is literalness, and the second is readability. 
Uh, the King James had the similar goals as the, uh, the NIV, but the NIV reversed those two goals. They put readability first and literalness second. So what you find more in the NIV is a little more paraphrasing rather than direct translation. So if you're going to choose just one word, um, if you just say uh, wives must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, it might be unclear what you're referring to. If you say women, well, that's a safe translation. Uh, But what women is he speaking about? Well, since he's talking about deacons, I think he's talking about deacons' wives. In fact, the NIV translates it that way. The wives of deacons. The King James in 1611 translated it that way, as did the Geneva Bible. The wives of deacons. And so instead of using one word, they're using several words, and which is unusual for the King James, but they're trying to give some clarity in terms of context. Now, it, there's an assumption in eldership that a man has his family under control, and that would certainly include his wife. So in one sense, he covers this issue of the need for a man, an elder, to have a wife who's, uh, who's qualified. And there are some men who are qualified for ministry for, to be elders in the church, but their wives disqualify them. And the same could be said of deacons. But I think by design, God inspires Paul's pen to include women here in this dialogue, especially because he, he wants it underscored and underlined that this is absolutely essential for someone in the office of deacon. Why? Because deacons who serve at the will of the elders, like in Acts 6, are engaged in ministry to the people in the congregation. They are servants. And there are many situations where a deacon finds himself not being able to serve someone without his wife. Uh, If a deacon uh, has a family, say, that they're caring for a community Bible church and there's some single woman they have to go and minister to, uh, we won't let them ever go alone. One, for appearance purposes, so that no one could accuse him of some immoral act, but also to protect him. Uh, in case there was someone with some evil ulterior motives. And so he would have to take his wife with them, with him. And so what ends up happening many times in deacon ministry is a wife becomes privy to uh, both positive and negative things in terms of the people that they minister to. And so if a wife is not dignified, if she's a gossip, if she's not temperate, then then she could ultimately destroy the ministry of that deacon by knowing and becoming aware of some problem that she's with her husband with, serving with him, uh, and becomes aware of it, and then she's a gossip. She could really destroy his ministry and really hurt the overall ministry of the church. But the case for women deacons is extremely, extremely weak, and that's why most evangelical churches have not embraced it. But today, as the church becomes more feminized and you have Christian feminists and people want to placate the culture, pastors are bending and say, well, you know, I don't want to make the women in the church mad, so we'll have women deacons. That's so weak and pathetic, and it lacks good, solid leadership when pastors acquiesce to that kind of mentality. Great question. Let's go to the next one. We have another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Hello. 
I have a question. My mom, I was talking to her, and she just doesn't understand why, when you look at the um, the age of the people in the Old Testament, how at the very beginning, how old people are. Take, for instance, Methuselah was 969 years old. And then she wants to know how exactly, uh, who exactly wrote the first five books of the Bible and were the people like shepherds. I told her that Abraham was a shepherd. So is that right? And then Luke, was he a Gentile in the New Testament? And that's my question. I'll hang up and listen. All right. You're asking some great questions, and I I certainly appreciate them. Uh, Let me just say first, in reference to... uh, the ages of the Old Testament. I have a sermon on this because when I deal with Genesis 5, and you can go online to search the scriptures, all one word, searchthescriptures.org, and listen to the sermon on Genesis 5 because in that particular passage of scripture, I deal with uh, the ages of people and why they changed. Uh, Adam lived to be 930. Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived, who died before his father did, lived to 969. He's the oldest man who ever lived. He died before his father did because his father was uh, Enoch, and Enoch never died. Uh, God took him up. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, the Bible teaches. Uh, In either case, the ages are real. Uh, People prior to the flood lived a very, very, very long time. After the great flood, after Genesis 6 through 9, you begin to see the ages radically change. Uh, 175, 138, 120. So that by the time you come to Moses' day, several hundred years later, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he'll write in Psalm 90, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years if due to strength, 80 years. And that's pretty much true today. People live between 70 and 80 years. You don't meet that many 100-year-old people. And I know there are folks today who say, well, we're going to be in 100 years living to 200. I, I, I doubt it. I, I doubt it very, very seriously. I think what you see here in Genesis 90 is the general principle. And there are certainly exceptions to it, but that's the general principle. So the question then becomes, well, why, what changed? Well, I think there's a number of possible explanations. The best, I think, is that prior to the Great Flood, probably around the entire Earth was a cloud of sorts. Like you look at Saturn and there's a ring around Saturn. Well, my guess is is that all around the Earth, there was a, a cloud structure of type that protected the earth from a lot of harmful rays from the sun and watered the earth the way it did. Prior to the Great Flood, the Bible's clear, it never rained. never rained prior to the Great Flood. And so God watered the earth from below. There was like a mist, the Bible says, that watered the earth. And maybe it was more like a terranium type of effect. And what's really interesting is um, there was a point in time when the geographics of the earth radically changed. And so you have at each end of the earth uh, frozen ice caps. And they found, you know, up in the Arctic, for instance, a woolly mammoth with green vegetation still in his mouth, frozen. How, How did a woolly mammoth have green vegetation frozen in his mouth up in the Arctic under ice? Well, if there was a great flood and if God basically took that 
cloud and basically allowed it, allowed it to condescend and all of it turned into water, then it would have radically changed the whole dynamics of the earth and would have radically changed uh, the ages that people live. And so you see a radical change that does indeed unfold after the great flood and ages begin to drop down in Scripture to where they are today. I don't think that's by accident. I think that's by um, God's sovereign design, and there's an explanation for it. Who wrote the first five books of the Moses? Uh, the, uh, of, of Moses, Moses did. It's called the books of Moses, and for a reason. Now we have in our English Bibles uh, some Greek names. Genesis is a Greek name. Uh, it means beginnings. Genosius. Um, in my Hebrew Bible, it's not called Genesis. It's called Barashit. Barashit bara Elohim. Hashemayim v'yet ha'aretz. That's the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, parashit, Elohim, God, plural, created, singular, because the triunity of God is affirmed. Hashemayim, the heavens, v'yet ha'aretz, and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. So it's called by a different name, as is Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Numbers. They're given Hebrew names. But the fact is, is that they were all considered one work of Moses. Uh, That's how they're referred to in the New Testament. That's how Christ referred to them. On the Emmaus Road, uh, Jesus uh, met two men, if you remember, and they didn't initially recognize him. And 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 then it it, it says, um, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. But the Luke records for us in this great book that he opened the scriptures to them. He said, "Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory?" Yes, that's what the prophet said in beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. Explain to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And so when they refer to the Old Testament, they didn't call it the Old Testament, of course, because it was the only book they had. Uh, they referred to that, the scriptures as Moses and the prophets, or sometimes Moses, the Psalms and the prophets. But that's how it was described. Uh, so the first five books are attributed to Moses. In liberal German theology in the late 1800s, they came up with a theory called JEPD. And uh, it refers to four different authors that some redactor uh, took and bled all these different authors together. So they'll say, well, there's one author who who wrote a uh, Genesis 1 and a different author wrote Genesis 2. And they'd say that's why there's two creation accounts. Well, there's not two creation accounts. There's one that gives the overall view and then the other that adds more specific details. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. But they say, well, there's a priestly source, and there's a source that loves to use the word Elohim, and he's the E source, and the Jehovah source, and, and um, you know, it's just ridiculous. Um, it, there's different writings, uh, styles at times, because he's talking about different issues, but it's one writer, one pen, and that's what Jesus said. Now, the liberal theologians of our day would say, well, Jesus was just accommodating himself to a you know, well-established belief of the day, didn't really want to tell the people, yeah, there's actually four authors of Moses and the Torah. And, and so he just accommodated himself and just let them believe that. Then that would make Jesus a liar. And if he was a liar, he was a sinner. If he was a sinner, he's not the savior of the world. 
You can tell a whole lot, a whole lot about where a man is in his theology and his view of scripture by just asking him who wrote the book of Genesis or who wrote the first five books. And when you have these liberals who talk about, you know, Deutero or Trudero Isaiah, that there are two or three authors for Isaiah when the Bible gives us one or multiple authors for the Torah, the law, uh, the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five, referring to the first five books of the law, Tukos law in Greek. And then, then you're talking to a liberal and he's ill-informed. But it might be, you know, your mom's asking some good questions. And so I would start her. I would start her by saying, Mom, well, why don't we listen to some some sermons on the book of Genesis and get her to listen to the first five or six sermons that I did. You can down, stream them off the Internet, plug them into your large screen TV or whatever you have. You can watch them on TV with your mom. And I think a whole bunch of her questions would be answered. But you see, I, I have compassion for your mom because if she grew up, you know, say going to the university, these are the things that have been pumped into people's minds for the last 40 to 50 years. And the Bible's being discredited and, you know, you have some guy with a PhD and Dr. You know, Gumballs tells you that Moses didn't write it, but so-and-so, there are four sources. And, you know, how does some college student who's never even read the Bible before, you know, deal with that kind of stuff? And, and so the Bible has been undermined and discredited, and the first 11 chapters of Genesis didn't really happen. It's not history. It's just they say a parable to teach us spiritual lessons, and they didn't literally cross a Red Sea, and, you know, they, they went across a Reed Sea, and they went across in a foot of water. And people who who start with these premises that dismiss that God is all-powerful and that he can do the miraculous— and so the key to understanding the Bible is the first verse. If you can believe the first verse in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can believe anything. Great question. Let's go to the next one. See if we can knock off a few more. All right. Very good. Uh, another listener emailed us and would like to know, does God disapprove of a vasectomy? Uh, you know, I wouldn't encourage it. Uh, I, I don't think that it's uh, a wise decision. People today, they don't really want to have children and they they think about children and they think, oh man, they're a burden and they don't really see them as a blessing. And so they only want one or two and they've adopted the world's mindset. And I'm not saying you should have 15. I think it's an individual decision that you need to pray and seek God on. But, you know, when you make decisions like that, you, you, I mean, I know they can be reversed, but you, you make some decisions that I think are very foolish and, uh, you're, you're really plain with uh, uh, an area of your body that God wouldn't call you to mess with. And so I would, I, I, I'm not in favor of them. Let's go to the next question. All right. A listener who says that as a Christian, she feels she should have fully abstained from alcohol, um, but some others in her church feel it is okay to drink moderately, not to the point of intoxication. This caller would like to know what instruction the Bible gives us about alcohol. Well, you know, uh, it's kind of unfortunate because we live in a day where you have more and more Christian people who are affirming the use of alcohol. Uh, Moody just uh, interviewed Mark Driscoll the other day, and he's got all these articles on why he drinks and why he thinks it's okay to drink. And it's really discouraging to me. Um, He's discredited himself, in my mind, as as a pastor, shouldn't be a pastor. He's very 
Uh, he's just not qualified. And when he's uh, inviting the body of Christ to drink with him, I I just think it's very, very foolish. I've read his articles and I know what he can do in private and not causing people to stumble. But by his example, he says he'll have a glass of wine or a cocktail. I don't know what's in his cocktail, but so that that's what this younger generation is up against. Uh, I, I was speaking yes a couple of days ago in church on Sunday. You know, we're talking about the reform movement. Uh, you know, the young, the restless, and the reformed, and they're really into come, getting together and having a glass of wine and smoking their cigars, where they, uh, you know, uh, discuss divine election and uh, limited atonement and things like that. And uh, so what I would do is I would direct you to a sermon I preached on John 2, the miracle at Cana, because, you know, there are some verses that every non-Christian likes to to quote, you know, um, cleanliness is next to godliness, of course, not in the Bible. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's one of their favorite verses in the sinner's Bible. And the third verse is Jesus drank wine, you know, and they use this as a justification for Christians to be able to drink. And so I want you to hear my sermon on that. It, it, I mean, if they thought about what they were saying, Driscoll quoting in his article, John chapter 2 is a basis for using alcohol. If you really think it through carefully, but he's such a sloppy expositor, uh, it's sickening to me. Um, when you look at it carefully, those statements are blasphemous to the character of our Lord and Savior, because what they're basically saying, if you read the text carefully, is they're saying that Jesus, once the people were blasted, made wines to get them more blasted. And I do not think for one second the text is saying that and that you can make that kind of statement. And they do it from John chapter 2 and verse 10 and it's an abuse of the scripture. So I go through that verse and a number of other passages, and maybe you think I'm old school, and but I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of good men, uh, virtually most of whom you li- listen to on Moody, but Moody, you know, interviewing Driscoll, I mean, some of these guys are out to lunch. They don't even know the issues that are going on today, and it's the sad, sick state of the evangelical church in America. So Driscoll writes a book on sex, encouraging part, heterosexuals to do things that only homosexuals do. I mean, it's just absolutely disgusting. Um, you know, and yet this is the rave, and this is what people are reading. Um, my, uh, again, it's a sad, sad, sad day that we live in. So go to searchthescriptures.org, click on the Gospel of John, click on John 2, 1 through 10, And I deal not just with the wedding at Cana, but I deal with uh, other passages in the Bible that speak to alcohol in its use. And I think your question will be answered. It would take me an hour to answer it. And I did that day. So I want you to listen to it so that you can answer intelligently and lead others accordingly. We're out of time for today. We're so glad you could be with me today for the Bible line. And uh, if we didn't get to your question, well, God willing, we'll be back next Tuesday during this same hour. Hope you have a great day.